invite you to remain standing a moment longer for this morning's reading from our gospel. I'll be reading from Luke's gospel, the 13th chapter, verses 31 through 35. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, Go and tell that fox for me, Listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day I must be on my way, because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I have desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you, and I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. <laughs> Certainly this week has had a lot of news uh, stories to it. And uh, before the, the hate crime in New Zealand where 50 people so far have died, I I was looking at the college entrance level scandal uh, that seems to continue to unfold and, and was really amazed, and maybe I should, maybe that's my naivete about what people seem to have been willing to do and maybe even are continuing to do, maybe with just a new uh, a person at the heart of the scandal, uh, since one now has been identified and arrested. Uh, but, but what people are willing to do, uh, so in their eyes they ensure this future uh, plans for their children. Uh, but in a smaller kind of context, it also, I guess, continues to amaze and even startle me when I hear uh, parents uh, prioritizing things over faith. And certainly we have our plates full today as we uh, try to raise up another generation, and we do things that point to other important things, uh, things that I don't see how could be more important than faith issues, of giving uh, young people an understanding of a relationship in God so that as they face their own challenges and even letdowns, they have a well from which to draw, to inspire, to believe, and to move forward. Uh, so I continue to uh, be in prayer for those of you that are raising children, uh, even grown children, as it were. But it is a, a way uh, uh, that people seem to, uh, to find uh, uh, hope and uh, plans. I know uh, uh, adulthood is challenging and uh, competitive things out there uh, cause us to do these things that I'm not quite happy of uh, and with. But uh, uh, speaking of uh, plans and uh, uh, destinations in life, I was reading about a famous study that took place a number of years ago, and it dealt with the graduating class from Yale University in 1953. So the graduates that agreed to participate in this study uh, were asked uh, at the outset of the study if they had clear and specific plans for their future. Uh, and, and while many said they did, there were only 3% in the follow-up question 
who acknowledged that they had written down those goals or those plans. So basically, this study dealt uh, with whether these uh, college graduates, class of 53, had written down uh, specific plans and goals. Now, 20 years later, this same research group reached out to the class, uh, 20 years of life under their uh, belts, uh, to see how they had done. And would you believe that the 3% who had written down those specific goals and objectives, at least from a financial perspective, were very successful in their lives? So much so, again, from a financial perspective, the researchers found out that that 3% had earned more than the 97% who had no written goals combined. So the power of having goals and plans, but more specifically, something in writing to claim, to follow, to lead. Now Jesus, we don't think, had any kind of written plans rolled up in his robe or hidden away, although we do know that he drew inspiration from reading Scripture, especially in the temple, especially from the prophet Isaiah. So Jesus had a plan, though, in this passage of Scripture I read to you. We're told he had set his eyes on Jerusalem. So Jesus was living out what he understood to be God's will in his life. Now, it's, it's useful for us to get a little bit of background information because Jesus has set his eyes on Jerusalem. And we know, as Jesus would have too, that Herod Antipas is on the throne he is the puppet governor, if you will. He's not, uh, he's not really the king of the Jews because the Romans won't let him have that title, even though he wants his father's title as king of the Jews. Herod the Great had been the king of the Jews. Herod Antipas, Antipas was not allowed to have that title, and that made him very unsettled, very uneasy. And so anybody that comes to Jerusalem as a prophet is going to be under the auspices, under the careful eye of Herod uh, Antipas and his spies or his people, listening to see how they might upset the status quo. So here we have this kind of uneasy feeling, and yet Jesus is saying, I must go to Jerusalem. Now, Herod is a power broker, but he's also deadly. He has killed a number of his own family to get what he wants, uh, to get into the positions of power that he desires. And so Jesus is walking into this. By this time in Luke's gospel, John the Baptist, uh, the prophet that had baptized Jesus in the Jordan River, John the Baptist, who is Jesus' own cousin, has been arrested uh, and questioned, uh, but also beheaded, uh, executed because of another political uh, power uh, scheme going on in the Herod family with Herodias. And so Jesus continues to walk to Jerusalem knowing that he might suffer a similar fate as John the Baptist had. And yet Jesus has his eyes fixed on Jerusalem. Jesus is a prophet. And prophets, as he says, are killed in Jerusalem. And we can go back and see the prophet Zechariah, the prophet Uriah, not the one that, uh, that, not Uriah from David in Bathsheba's story, but Uriah the prophet. These two great prophets were also killed in Jerusalem. And so Jesus is setting 
his eyes on Jerusalem. Now, when we look at Luke's gospel, Luke writes from a position of hope. Luke uh, is inspired by the stories of Jesus reaching out to the least, to the last, to the lost, to the women, lifting them up, inspiring them. We hear Luke talk uh, of how Jesus brings a, a healing to the people, a new reign of God, if you will. We hear Jesus and see Jesus in stories that paint this wonderful picture of hope. We also hear unjust judges coming to a reality and willing to be just in their admission, administration of justice. We have a story of sons coming home again. We have a story of Samaritans reaching out, willing to cross boundaries, cross lines to help people. Luke brings us this message of hope, and yet here in this story as it unfolds, the Pharisees say, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. This short passage of Scripture has got so much intrigue, so much excitement built in, if you will, and yet Jesus says, no, this is my purpose. I am going to Jerusalem, this place where prophets are killed. You know, I think very often our human tendency when, when we don't allow spiritual growth to occur, our tendency is we, we try to find people who are kind of like us, people who kind of like to think like us on a lot of things. It, it kind of uh, makes us feel good. It gives us these uh, ideas or conceptions that, that, that we're in the, 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 the uh, majority, that all people need to think like we do. I think that gets to be a dangerous place for us Perhaps like the Pharisees. And so when I see the Pharisees coming to Jesus saying, you need to leave, I don't know that the Pharisees are being as kind as it might sound here. Because Jesus, if you listen to what Luke says, he says at this very hour, these are the same Pharisees that have been trying to trick and trip Jesus up so that they can have him arrested. I don't think they're being kind. I think they're grasping at straws to get him to leave. Because this prophetic word, these experiences that he is bringing to people, are upsetting the masses. They're bothering people who, who gather and are like-minded. It causes them to think about God and their spirituality because you see that's the role of the prophet, to bring the prophetic word when that word might be unpopular, when that word might be threatening to the way they already or believe they think, even when they think it's right to think and behave the ways they do. So Jesus is bringing this prophetic word to Jerusalem, not just in a confrontation, if you will, with King Herod, who we could say is a really nasty guy and deserves to be confronted, but to the status quo, the people of Jerusalem. Jesus laments over Jerusalem. These are His people. These are people whom follow some of the same customs that he does, talk about the same God that he worships, but yet don't behave in the ways that they do. In a few days from this setting in Luke's story, we're going to have Palm Sunday. I want to share with you from Luke uh, chapter 19, so I'm skipping forward about five or six chapters to what would be Palm Sunday. And I want to read to you another passage of Scripture. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, if you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace. 
but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set upon ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. So Jesus has this special place in His heart for His people, but He realizes how they have turned away from God, how they've been misled, how they are not thinking and believing and living correctly. Forty years later, it is in fact the Romans who tear down the temple, who have complete takeover where there's no longer Jewish government. And so Jesus in His prophetic word warns those who don't heed His call, don't heed His message, don't see His peace, His love and His reconciliation. Bishop Hazen Werner uh, tells a story about a doctor. Uh, this was many years ago before cell phones. Uh, uh, many years ago, uh, uh, Bishop Werner tells uh, of this doctor who needed to consult a, a specialist in a, uh, a case uh, 50 to 60 miles away. He had a, a young boy who was very sick. And so the specialist listened to the, to the local doctor over the phone and and told this specialist, I need you to come here. And so the specialist agreed. Uh, he got in his car, and before he could leave his own town, he stopped at a traffic light, and a man with a gray hat and a brown jacket stuck a gun through the open window of his car and told him to get out. And the doctor says, you don't understand. I, I No, get out of your car or I'll shoot you. And so the doctor... The specialist got out of his car and this man with the black hat and the brown jacket drove away in his car. The specialist was so concerned, he, he went to four or five houses knocking on the door trying to, uh, trying to get to a telephone to report the crime and, and to get a taxi more importantly so that he could get to the bus station and get to the next town. And finally, after a taxi took him to the bus station, he bought a ticket, he got to the town got to the hospital where this sick boy was, the doctor who had requested his services said, you're too late. If you'd only been here 20 minutes, an hour sooner, you might have been able to save him. But he said, I want you to meet the boy's parents because you did come. And he took the specialist into the waiting room and the specialist immediately saw the man with the black hat and the brown jacket. The father of the child. The father who was desperate to get to his son's bedside but didn't realize that he had interrupted the one who could have saved his son. Friends, Jesus gets interrupted by us all the time. Jesus who came into the world to save us to save us from evil, to save us from harm, to save us from ourselves gets interrupted all the time. And yet He's the one who came into this world to give us life. Not life that has no consequences, not life that has no reward, but a life that is rich in love and forgiveness and encouragement. Jesus is not weak when we talk about him laying down his life. As a matter of fact, it's a truly strong man 
who is willing to look death in the face and make a sacrifice if necessary. Paul and Carolyn London, missionaries to Sudan, talk about their work with Sudanese tribes. And they said, you know, the, usually in almost every tribe, if not every tribe, it is the strongest person in the tribe that becomes the chief of the tribe. Not just so they can wear the big headdress of the chief or the big ceremonial robes that the chief is seen wearing, but it's because of the physical needs that the village relies upon. You see in Sudan, these missionaries tell us when, when a well is dug, it doesn't fill up with water. They dig a well and, 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 and in the stone that they carve to, to go down a hundred feet into the, uh, into the bottom of the well where water slowly seeps, doesn't gush, where water slowly seeps, it is a strong man of the village who has to go down slits carved into the wall to get the water. And they bring it up one wineskin at a time. So it can't be stolen. So it can't be wasted. And so the chief needs to be able to go down into the well himself. And one day, the London's reported a, a man in a village fell from those slits in the wall and broke his leg and couldn't come up. And so the chief was summoned. And the chief took off his headdress and he took off his ceremonial robe and he, he descended down the steps and put the man with the broken leg on his shoulders and shifted from slit to slit until he brought the injured man to the top of the well. Jesus, my friends, Jesus who wants to be our chief is willing to come down to us to save us from our brokenness, to lift us up out of the dark wells that we live in, to give us life, to bring us hope. We are on this journey of Lent. We are talking about discipleship. Our discipleship, not our neighbor's discipleship. Our discipleship as individuals. We are invited to respond, not just with faith, but with love for the One who comes to save us. But we need to be confronted with our brokenness, our sin, our estrangement from God during this Lenten season so that we can grow, which is the second part of our pathway of discipleship here at First Methodist. Last week we talked about learning. Today we talk about growing. Growing in the likeness of God. It takes a, a commitment. It takes a sacrifice on our part to make room in a busy life for growth. To make room in our daily schedule to pray, to meditate, to read Scripture, to come and gather once a week for worship to be reminded about who God is and who God wants us to be. A time when it's not like the world out there beyond these walls. A time that we're reminded of God's abundant love for us. Ron Heathcraft, a storyteller, talks about an earthquake that occurred in Nepal several years ago. You may remember that from news stories. Thousands of people were killed in that earthquake. Thousands of people, some uh, were, were dying and they didn't even know it because they couldn't be rescued. Food couldn't be brought to them. Heathcraft talks about mountain climbers at Mount Everest. Eighteen died in the base camp where climbers start their ascent up Mount Everest. Eighteen died there, but 140 climbers in various places 
were out there. And they went to the place they thought was the escape path, and it was blocked by rocks and stone. Impassable. And as days wore on, as the water supply they had with them, as the food was being exhausted, as hope seemed to to wane, there was help from the sky. They looked up and helicopters began to appear. And two at a time, 140 people were rescued from Mount Everest. People who had exhausted their hope. Help came from the sky that day. A young man, a 27-year-old named Rishi, lived for 82 hours under thousands of pounds of rubble before he was rescued, laid there in that rubble, smelling death around him, decay. And people ask, why were those mountain climbers saved? Why was Rishi saved? And it's because somebody came and rescued them. Somebody came and rescued them. Somebody did God's work that day. Friends, Jesus has come into the world to rescue us, to be our rescuer. God sent His Son so that you and I can know love, so that we can believe that love has power to change us, power to grow us as disciples, as followers of Jesus. And so I hope and I pray that as you search out ways to faithfully live and love and respond to what God is doing, that we see Jesus here walking steadily toward His understanding of what His life means to the Heavenly Father and to you and I, to every one of us. It doesn't matter about our backgrounds. It doesn't matter about our Uh, our ethnicities, our cultural settings, our wealth, none of that matters. God loves us all. And Jesus brings that message and that hope to this world and then calls upon us to be that love for others. I hope and I pray that as you gather and receive these gifts this morning, these gifts of bread and cup, that you will be reminded about how much God loves you, how much God wants you to live a changing life so that when you gather with people who who make statements that don't reflect God's values, when you go into the workplace and are bombarded by jokes that harm people's dignity, that as you step out into the world, you can be more aware of people who don't have the things that we have, that your heart and your mind and your body, its parts can be compassionate and merciful. And welcome people to come into this place of love where God loves us all as He loves His only Son. In the name of the Father, and in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen.